God, you are glorious. You are holy. You alone are God. And if there's one thing you have been repeating again and again this week, it's that the focus is not on what we're doing and what we're getting, or even on the programs as a church, our focus is on simply making your name great and pointing people to you because nobody, I cannot, Lee cannot transform a single person's life. Only you can transform lives. Only you can rescue people from the dead. And so we give you today, you are glorious. You are holy. You alone are God. May you be glorified and may you be the focus of this time, Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen. 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 All right. Well, good morning. I'm still on a little bit of a spiritual high from Mexico right now, so makes up for the lack of sleep, and that's a good thing. Um, but if you, if you have, hopefully you have a bulletin, because we today, are, we're going to be in scripture a lot, but we're going to be taking pieces from all over. So rather than having you flip and flip because we don't have time for that, I'm simply going to be kind of using some of those. So make sure you have that bulletin in front of you or the, the outline because it'll really help you in this. Um, over the last probably month or so, we as a church have been focused a lot on this topic of love. And, and three weeks ago, we talked about how love is more than a feeling. Right. Love is a choice. It is a decision to love something irrespective of whether or not it's worthy of it, whether or not it's earned it, whether or not it's lived up to some expectations we may have. And the only person who loves us perfectly is God. So when we read in Scripture that perfect love drives out fear, we're not talking about our love. We're talking about our father's love. And then over the last couple of weeks, Lee has been focusing on how two imperfect people can love one another and support one another to fulfill the calling that God has placed on their heart? How can a wife support her husband so that he can be the man that God has called him to be? And how can a husband love his wife and support her so that she can be the partner, the leader, the lover that God has called her to be? And then we began to prepare. We realized, okay, Easter is literally two weeks away. And we were planning today to begin our study through the book of Acts. But it didn't make a whole lot of sense to begin studying Acts when Acts is a clear response to what God did on Easter. Right? Because it is, a, it is the, the people of God going, okay, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is Lord. Now what? Because he's gone to be with God. He's gone to prepare a place for us. But now how should we live? How can we be ambassadors and all that kind of stuff? So rather than us diving in today and doing that for two weeks and then jumping out for Easter and then going back to it, we're going to pause that study until after Easter. And we're going to spend the next two weeks preparing our hearts for Easter. So then this last week, I almost called you Ethan. <laughs> Uh, it's funny. Um, but the, we, Lee and I started talking about how can we best prepare for Easter? How can we prepare our hearts for the single greatest act of love enacted in history? The day when the God of the universe got down off of his throne and said, I'm going to do for my children, my creation, what they cannot do for themselves. When he sent Jesus, cross, Jesus Christ to carry his cross to the Skull Hill, to Golgotha, where he hung on a cross, his blood pouring down to cover our sins. That is the single greatest act of love in history. It is a terribly tangible, painful 
yet powerful example of how much our Father in Heaven loves us. But a natural question that both some of us have probably have, but a lot of people who would never step foot in this church, a lot of people who are militantly against God and against what Scripture says, one of the questions many of them carry around in their hearts is, if God is God and he created us and he created everything, then why on earth would he need to send Jesus to die for us? Why did Jesus need to die at all? I mean, if he's God, couldn't he just say, I absolve you? And so that's what I want to explore today is what is the point of the cross? Why did Jesus need to die in the first place? In order for us to answer that, first we need to ask the question, well, what is sin? And why is sin such a big deal? Sin is a, a word that we get from archery. For those of you who are totally into like the Hunger Games or whatever, you know, you, you pull back the thing of Robin Hood for those of you who are from an older generation, right? I love you. When you're, when, you're, when you're doing archery and you're aiming at the target, the bullseye is the mark that you're aiming at. And when you release that arrow, if that arrow deviates even slightly from the bullseye, that is called a sin. So sin, at least from an archery standpoint, means to miss the mark. So when we talk about sinning, we're simply saying we have missed the mark. But then, of course, this begs the question, well, what is the mark? And I think most of us, even though we probably wouldn't say this out loud, even though intellectually we know this is not true, I think we live with the mindset that the mark is everybody else around me. God grades on a curve, and so so long as I'm on that bell curve, I'm on the front section, so long as I'm living better than my neighbors, so long as I'm not doing the same kind of things, or at least not doing as much of what they are doing as they are doing, then I'm good. <clears throat> I can't tell you how many people I've talked to talking about, do you, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Or maybe we're at a funeral and we're preparing and, and they're telling me the story of this person who's kind of lived their life the way they wanted to live their life. And then they say, I know where he is because he was a good person. She was a good person. Well, how, how do we define good? What makes somebody a good person? Is it because they didn't murder somebody? Because they didn't commit adultery? Because they didn't cheat on their taxes as much as the next guy? But scripture says that if we even harbor bitterness in our heart towards a friend or a brother, it's as if we have committed murder. If we even look at another person lustfully, it is as if we have committed adultery. And every single one of us is lied, cheated, stolen. Every single one of us is stolen. Scripture is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a single one of us who can stand up and say, I have lived a holy, righteous life. And so while we may look around our neighbors and say, I'm better than them, God does not grade on a curve. Because the mark that we're aiming at, there's only one, and it's God himself. So Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, and this is one of probably dozens of places that it repeats the same thing throughout both the Old Testament and the New. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, God declares, you, my people, must be holy because I, your Lord God, Yahweh, am holy. You must be, holy means to be set apart, other from what is common. You must be set apart, because I am set apart. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, because your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the mark. 
And when we begin to recognize that that's the mark that we're aiming for, that's what we're trying to hit, then every single one of us very quickly realizes, I have missed the mark. And I will be the first to say, I am not a Christ follower because I've done it all right. I'm not a Christ follower because I'm a good person. I am a Christ follower because I am the first to admit that I'm a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. That's why I'm here. And I think that I'm probably in pretty good company. But why does that matter? Why does it matter that we have missed the mark? Because as Paul very clearly states in Romans, the wages of our sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus, I'm sorry, not Jesus, but God told this to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, looking back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, right at the very beginning. And I know I spend a lot of time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because it's the foundation for our relationship with God. So much of the human condition can be pulled out of those first few chapters. And so I find myself starting there because it, what happens there percolates all throughout the rest of Scripture. If you can wrap your heart and your mind around what was going on in those first few chapters, you will understand the rest of the relationship with God, the rest of Scripture, so much better. But in Genesis chapter 3, or in Genesis chapter 2, God warned Adam and Eve, listen, everything in this garden is fair game, but don't touch that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Now, to be truthful, part of that death meant physical. And when we hear the word die, we tend to think, I stop breathing, my brain stops functioning, and my heart stops beating, and that's it. They bury me in the ground, or they put me in a box, and all that kind of stuff. And certainly physical death is part of it. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden so that they wouldn't be able to get to the tree of eternal life. And their bodies began to break down, and physical death was one ramification of their sin but it certainly wasn't the whole idea of what it meant for them to die. Because a greater aspect of their death was not only physical, but spiritual. And by spiritual death, I mean separation from God. God created mankind to be in an intimate relationship with him. And when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and sinned, it began to sever their relationship with their creator. We see that Sin has exactly that that impact. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, Isaiah writes, Your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. This is exactly the kind of death that God was warning Adam and Eve about. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Because your sin will sever your relationship with your God. Now, of course, the question we we need to ask is, well, why? Why does our sin separate us from God? Why is it such a big deal? Because our sin makes us naturally incompatible with our Father God. Now, I used to think that this was tantamount to a kid going out and playing in the mud, right? When we sin, it's like we're playing in the mud and the muck of this world and we get covered in mud, And then like my boys coming through my, my house and tracking, you know, the footprints of muddy footprints all over my nice clean carpet. I'm like, ah, stop it. Get outside. Take your shoes off. Let me hose you off and all that kind of stuff. My thinking was if we sin and as we sin, God doesn't want anything to do with us because he's a little bit of a fastidious God. He doesn't want it. He's got his nice clean robes on and he just doesn't want to be near us. And when we try to run to him, he's like, go away, go take a shower, go take a bath. I don't want to touch you. As if we could somehow solely God. 
as if we who are unclean could make the holy God who created everything unclean. But just a, a glance at Scripture reveals that that's not God's heart. I mean, think about the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Here's a kid who had been covered in the muck of the mire. He had been sleeping where pigs slept. He had been covered in the mud and the filth and the excrement that he, just, that he probably reaped. And then he had this long walk home where the, just the, the gunk of, of the walk and the sweat and grime and all that kind of stuff caked on, and he smelled. And when God in this story runs out to meet him, he doesn't stop, hold his nose and go, go take a bath. He throws his arms around his boy and he begins to celebrate. And then he goes, go get him a new a robe, you know. Let's put some new sandals on his feet because my boy is home. But he does not hold him at arm's length and go, ooh, gross. Even more than that, though. Because remember, that was the picture that God was giving of our father and his posture towards us. But it goes even deeper than that. If we believe that God wants nothing to do with us because he's a fastidious God who doesn't want to be sullied by us, then why on earth would he send his son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, to take our sins upon himself? There is no single greater act of getting down into the muck and the mire and joining us where we are so that he can help us get out than that moment. And so I would suggest that when we talk about the fact that our sin makes us incompatible with God, it is not talking about the fact that when we sin, God is disgusted by us and he wants nothing to do with us and he holds his head or he just kind of like pulls himself away. In fact, I would suggest that it's just the opposite. God separates himself from us for our sake. I think a better analogy for our sin making us incompatible with God's holiness would be that of light and darkness. God is light. And all throughout Scripture we see God, whenever we actually get a picture of him, he is often depicted as light. So bright, so pure, so intense that you can't even look at it. All you can see is the rainbow that surrounds him because you can't look directly. It's like looking at the sun, right? It'll blind you. And that is the holiness of our God. And in comparison, we, who were made to be light bearers, made to be reflections of him, kind of like the moon reflects the light of the sun, we have been sullied by this world. Our sin nature has corrupted our ability to be light bearers. And so we are like darkness. And when light and darkness interact, darkness doesn't overcome light. Just the opposite. Light overcomes darkness. If you were to put light and darkness in the same place, the light would utterly destroy the darkness. And in the same way, if we, in our sin nature, were to come into contact with our holy, righteous God, we would be utterly destroyed. And so that's the predicament we find ourselves in. Our sin makes us incompatible with our God. And to draw near to us in our sin would destroy us. And yet our God loves us and does not want to give up on us. He is not willing to simply give us over to our sin nature and let it win. Which is totally within his prerogative. He could have done that, but he chose not to. <clears throat> so here's the, here's the condition we find ourselves in. We are naturally sinful. From Adam and Eve on, sin has gotten a hold of our hearts. It has warped the way that we view ourselves. Shame has entered in. We are not comfortable with who we are. When we see our nakedness, we're ashamed. 
And, it, and our sin separates us from the God who created us to be in relationship with him. How shall we proceed? Well, humanity has always had a response, and then God has a response. We're going to look at the two different ways that we try to deal with this, both the human way and the holy way, or God's way. So back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve... They eat the fruit. They disobey. Suddenly, shame enters in and warps their perspective of themselves. I think that's the first victim in the Garden of Eden. The first consequence of sin is it shifted and changed and corrupted the way they viewed themselves. Because they'd always been naked. But for the first time in history, they are ashamed of their nakedness. It's no longer acceptable. Their perspective on their selves changes dramatically. And suddenly... They're disgusted and they're embarrassed and they feel vulnerable. So what do they do? They hide, right? They run into the bushes. They hide from God. They hide from one another. And then they look around saying, how can I fix this? How can I deal with this? And they start reaching for whatever's at hand to cover up their nakedness and their vulnerability so that they do not need to feel as vulnerable. They try to put on armor to cover themselves and their shame. For them, they grab the closest thing at hand, which was fig leaves. We can draw this analogy. We could use maybe today as masks. We put on masks to try to protect ourselves. But this is a human natural response. When we come face to face with our imperfection and with our sin, our natural reaction is to go into hiding from God and one another and to put on masks and pretend to be something other than we are. We try to prove that we are other than what we feel. And so perhaps some of the masks we put on are performance, right? Either at school, I got to get good grades, or on the, on the soccer field, or on the football field, or on the basketball court, I gotta, I've got to perform, I've got to make a basket, because this will prove that I'm not the failure, that I am not as inadequate as I feel. Maybe it's we need to find a, 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 a significant other. I need to be in a relationship with somebody because by myself I feel insecure, but if I had someone else, they would prove that I matter, that I am acceptable. Maybe it's accumulation. We drive our fig leaves. We wear our designer fig leaves. Some of us starve ourselves and spend hours upon hours at the gym trying to make ourselves look presentable. Sometimes we even serve as a fig leaf. There is, I love going down to Mexico, but there is a part of me, my flesh tries to twist that and say, it's about me. It's about what I can do. Was I profound when I got up there and shared at the men's rehab center? Well, you know, what did people think about me? And I make the focus myself rather than other people. I'm going, do, do people care? Do people notice? Am I enough? And we perform. We try to become enough. And still, it's not enough. We may protect ourselves, shield ourselves, put up our Facebook facade for the rest of the world, but inside, we're still aware of our imperfection. And so what do we do? We anesthetize ourselves. As I said at the rehab center yesterday, I don't know if this is a good analogy. We, we roll up and I, we smoke our fig leaves. We grind them up and we inject them or we snuff them up or we drink them or we eat them. We use fig leaves to anesthetize ourselves, to deaden the pain that we feel inside. We use our drug of choice, and it can be anything from pornography to shopping to exercise to busyness to television to whatever, to social media. Something, anything to distract ourselves so we don't have to be aware of our imperfection. That's one response. Either cover up, hide, or deaden the pain. 
And we not only do this with one another, pretend to have it together when inside we're falling apart, but we do this with God. A human reaction to our sin is to try to make up for or be good enough or earn our relationship with him. We see this as far back as as the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They're a perfect example of this mindset that I must be better. My relationship with God is contingent upon my efforts and my performance. And so for them, their fig leaf of choice was the law, the law of Moses that God had given to the Israelites to kind of say, you're my people. I have set you apart. And so I want you to be holy as I am holy. I'm going to give you this this law, this kind of way of living to help preserve your vertical relationship with me and your horizontal relationship with one another. This law will help kind of depict what it's like to be my people, to be holy. And they took that law and they ran with it. They constructed it into a... They tried to build like a stairway to heaven to somehow make a way that they could walk and earn their way into God's good graces and earn their righteousness. You know, I got to recognize the Sabbath day and I and I and I can only walk a certain amount of distance because I don't want to do too much labor. And, you know, I can't interact with these people. I can't touch a dead body. I got to make myself ceremonially clean. And they added and they added and they added. They were so zealous, zealous about this, in fact, that they added rules upon rules upon rules on top of the ones that they found in Scripture in order to build fences around those laws so that they would never get close enough to the edge of the cliff that they might actually fall off. They put fence and fence and fence and rules and rules and rules, and they became legalistic with the mindset that they could somehow climb their way into God's good graces. But here's the problem. God never intended for the law to be a stairway to heaven. And so they found themselves climbing broken stairways to heaven that could never possibly take them where they hoped it would take them. Because the law was never intended to be a way for us to earn our righteousness. If anything, it was intended to show us just how incapable we were of earning this. And so let me use an analogy that I've used in here before. It's the best one I can think of. The law is like the x-ray machine at my dentist's office which I got to spend quite a bit of time with this week. Fun. Two root canals on Thursday. Awesome. Yeah. So you go into the x-ray machine, you sit down, and they start taking pictures of your teeth. And that x-ray machine is not designed to heal any rot, any decay, any cavities. It has zero ability to fix what's wrong with our teeth. All it can do is reveal the decay. All it can do is reveal the cavities so that we will be willing to go and sit down in a chair and let the dentist begin to drill and fill. Right? Because it's not something we would choose otherwise to do unless we could see how desperately we needed to see the dentist. I'm not about to go, hey, can you give me root canals? That sounds like a good way to spend my afternoon. But I do it because I see the x-rays and I go, all right, here we go. And in the same way, the law was never intended to fix our brokenness, to heal our sin. It was never intended to be a stairway that we could climb to heaven. It was intended to be a spotlight that God used to shine on our brokenness so that it would impel us into the arms of our God because he wanted us to recognize that we are naturally broken and we desperately need a savior. 
We cannot save ourselves. Only he can do it. That's the purpose of the law. But we're a lot like those Pharisees, aren't we? Many of us have been trying to earn God's favor. We, we probably feel a little bit like the prodigal son. God will never take me back because I've messed up too much. I've, I've, I'm covered in the filth of this world so much that he would be disgusted by me. So I'm not even going to ask to be a son. Maybe he'll just take me back as a servant, as a slave. Maybe I can do enough good things to earn my way back into his good graces. But right now, I'm a failure. I'm a reject. I am the sum total of my sins. <clears throat> and then we look at Scripture. And when we have that mindset that God is kind of some distant, disappointed father with his arms crossed watching us slowly trudge home, we begin to look at this as a book of rules. A book of do's and don'ts. A a, a book of touch this, but don't touch that. This becomes a bunch of hoops that we have to jump through to somehow try to prove that we are worthy of God's love. Let's change the analogy a little bit. God is not a a disgruntled father, and I apologize for this, Rich, but God is a, a traffic cop sitting up there, shiny glasses, you know, so you can't even see his eyes, arms crossed just waiting for us to screw up. So that he can throw the book at us, right? Because he can cite chapter and verse where we screwed up the moment we do it. And when we screw up, he's waiting there to strike us down with an IRS audit or a cold or cancer or a broken relationship. I suspect many of us have that sort of theology in our mind. That God is just waiting for us to mess up so that he can throw the book at us. And so it's no wonder that we don't have a whole lot of desire to spend much time in here. Because who likes to read a dry, cold rule book? There's no life in that. And many of us probably just give up moving towards God. Because how could God forgive me? I know my sin. And so we find ourselves just distancing ourselves from God, maybe trying to make up for our mistakes, but at the end of the day, feeling completely hopeless because we know we can't. So that's the human response, either to hide, cover ourselves up or anesthetize ourselves or try really hard to climb a broken stairway to heaven. But that's why The good news is the good news because here is the good news of Scripture that what we are incapable of doing on our own strength, God has done for us. And it's most perfectly shown through the cross where God himself took our sins upon himself, died in our place as a perfect sacrifice to cover over our imperfections so that we, prodigals, could come home. But you might think, well, you know what? It it feels a little bit like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two radically different gods. I get this a lot, right? The God of the Old Testament is cranky, angry, wrathful, but then Jesus shows up and he becomes happy. The reality is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
He doesn't shift and change. He's not fickle like we are. And I would suggest that the same God who sent his son to die for us is the God who confronted Adam and Eve in their sin in the garden. And the same posture and heart of a desire for redemption and reconciliation was it, it was present in God's heart then in the garden just as it was on Golgotha. So take just a moment with me in Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me. I just want to take a minute to illustrate God's heart for us. Now you know the story. God says the garden's yours. Go at it. Just don't touch that tree. And of course, that's exactly where Adam and Eve go. Why, why am I not supposed to touch that? But that, but you know, and Satan goes, you know, he, why he doesn't want you to touch that, right? Because if you touch it, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. You're deficient. And they start going, yeah, maybe God didn't give us everything we needed. And I would really like to know the difference between good and evil, whatever that is. And so it became tempting. And then they took it and they ate it. And the moment they did it, changed their perspective of themselves. And God entered in. And he saw right through the fig leaves. And he knew exactly what was going on. He goes, where are you? Well, we're here. We're, here. we're hiding because we heard you and we were, we were afraid. Why are you afraid? Have you done what I asked you not to do? Well, she did it, right? And they start the blame game. No, she made me do it. Oh, the serpent made me do it. And then come the consequences of their choices, right? The curses. And I often view the curses, I used to at least, as, as punishment for their mistakes. And certainly there is, a, 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 there, there are consequences to our sin. But I would suggest that those consequences, those curses were actually redemptive in nature. Let me explain what I mean by that. God recognized that when Adam and Eve flexed their independence and their ability to choose for themselves their free will, and they ate of that fruit and sin entered in, they were suddenly bent away from God. And their natural tendency would be to run to their own things and by their own strength try to fix it. And so God, in his infinite wisdom targeted the very areas that Adam and Eve, man and woman, would naturally find their identity in, would naturally find their fulfillment in. For the woman, he targeted her identity as a mother and as a wife. And for the man, he targeted his identity as a worker and what he did, the work of his hands. He frustrated the very things that they would naturally run to for fulfillment. And he said, no longer will, this, will you find fulfillment in this. And in a way, he cut a God-shaped hole out of their heart. So although we have a natural proclivity to run to things, to try to find a sense of fulfillment, a sense of wholeness, a sense of our identity, it will never, ever suffice. So that the only way we will ever find our fulfillment is in him. He is the only one who can fill this hole, this void. That doesn't mean that we don't try to find it in other things. But God naturally frustrated man and woman's attempts to fix that ache on their own so that they would be bent back towards him. But he didn't stop there. Because the next thing he did is he dealt with their nakedness. Go ahead and look with me at the very <clears throat> second to last verse. Not there. Not quite there. Look, look at verse 21 of chapter 3 of Genesis. 
Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Have you ever asked yourself where those garments of skin came from? You just kind of make them out of thin air? He killed an animal. At least one, if not more. This is the first recorded death that we have in all of God's creation. And it was a direct response to Adam and Eve's sin and to their shame. It was a way of doing for them what they had already attempted to do for themselves with the fig leaves. It was a much more permanent, albeit it wasn't eternal, but it was a momentary covering of their nakedness and of their vulnerability. And I would argue that it was simply a um, foreshadowing of what was to come. Because later on, when God covenants with his people, and he says, you will be my people, I will be your God today, I covenant with you. And he gave them the law to show them how, how they should live as a holy people, albeit they would do it imperfectly, and it would constantly point them to their need for a Savior. He also gave them the sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system was intentional, because here's the point of sin. Sin isn't just like an infraction of the law. Sin is, sin is a debt. When we sin, it is as if, as if we have incurred a debt that must be repaid. It's like when we get, a, uh, and this is a bad analogy, but when we get a speeding ticket, we get the ticket itself, and the penalty is what we have to pay. We've earned that. And God is righteous and just. And he would be unjust if he were to turn a blind eye to all of those tickets and all of those infractions and all of that debt and simply say, you can declare spiritual bankruptcy and it can all be expunged. That would make him an unjust judge. So he can't simply turn a blind eye to it. But nor is he willing to simply give us over to it. Because the wages of sin is death. And we have earned every single ticket. And we deserve the penalty, which is our death. But he did for us what we, we couldn't do for ourselves. And that he gave a way for us to pay that debt. And the sacrificial system was a momentary way of dealing with that. Because when you brought a bull or a goat to the, the high priest, and he sacrificed that goat or that bull or that sheep or that bird. The people looked at it, and as its lifeblood coursed out of it, they recognized that there, but for the grace of God go I. That should have been me. That life has been given for my life, for a momentary covering of my sin, so that for a moment I can be reconciled to God. I, who am imperfect and unholy, can reside in the midst of the holy God. But even that was imperfect. It did not have the ability to deal with our sin nature or cover our brokenness once and for all. So even that was simply foreshadowing of what was to come, of what God was going to do on Golgotha, the day that His Son, Jesus Christ, poured out His life because He was the perfect spotless lamb he was the one who gave his life for us once and for all and if you want to if you want to understand more about that how the sacrificial system works in with god read the book of hebrews because it's all throughout hebrews one of my very favorite verses is hebrew in hebrews chapter 10 where it declares that by one sacrifice his body jesus christ has made perfect forever 
those who are in the process of being made holy. He has justified us permanently, even though we're still in the process of this sanctification, of being set apart, of being made more like God. That's what he did. That's why he died. So God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So here's our response. Rather than stepping back into the shadows, trying to cover it up, trying to be good enough, the invitation this morning is simply to accept that gift. Simply to recognize that what we can't do for ourselves in these broken stairways to heaven that we try to climb, God has already done for us in the broken body of his son who bled out for us. That is the single greatest act of love and it is consistent with who God has been from the very beginning and who God will be in the end. Because God's desire is to return to what he created us to be. His sons, his daughters, his representatives who live in an intimate relationship with him. And so we read, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. We have earned death. We have earned eternal separation from God. But the gift that God gives us, that he gave us on the cross, is eternal life, which is more, by the way, than just living forever. Eternal life is the, same, is the antithesis of spiritual death. It is intimacy with our Father. It is a reconciliation of that relationship. And that doesn't begin when we die. That begins when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, when we invite him in, when we accept his death for ours. When we relinquish control of our lives, that's when eternal life begins. We get to start that journey that's going to last forever. And so this morning, I simply want to give you the same opportunity uh, that I gave those guys at the rehab center last night. And that is for us prodigals to come home. Because the good news of Scripture is that your Father in Heaven loves you more than He hates the sin in you. And it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, how far you've run, how much you've screwed up, how much you are sullied, He's already taken care of it on the cross. And so stop trying to clean yourself up. Stop trying to cover it over. Stop trying to pretend that you've got it all together and simply come home. And let him clean us up. Let him begin that process of working Christ in us. Let the Holy Spirit begin that process of cleaning house. It's not going to be overnight. And it's, going to, it's, it's a process that will take the rest of our lives, this side of the grave. But your Father loves you. And he simply wants you to come home. And so whether, if there are any of you out there, and I know that we're kind of a, a skeleton crew today. Some of, some of them are probably still, I'm probably going to show up in here in a few minutes. And when they do, we're going to show them grace. <laughs> but this morning, if there are any of you this morning that realize, yeah, I've been hiding. Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to cover up. Yeah, I've been trying to climb a broken stairway to heaven. Maybe you accepted Jesus years ago, but you recognize right now, and Pete, I'm going to invite you to come forward. 
Maybe you realize right now, I have been trying to do this by my own strength. I have been trying to climb a broken stairway to heaven. Or I have been trying to cover up and hide in the shadows because I'm ashamed. Come home. Let your father throw his arms around you. Let him do what you can't do for yourself. And maybe there are some of you this morning who have been holding God at arm's length. Because quite honestly, you're just not ready to relinquish control. Yeah, I know he'll accept me home, but I don't want to let go of the reins of my life. I I like being the captain of my ship. May I encourage you this morning to consider relinquishing them into his hands because he alone really knows what to do with your life. He has a purpose and a plan for you, but until you give him control, he'll let you run as long and as hard as And create as much carnage as you are determined to make. So whether you have prayed this prayer before and are simply recognizing right now I need to rededicate myself to resting in my Father's arms or you've never prayed it and you are ready to say, God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Would you come into my life and do for me what I can't do for myself? If that's you this morning and you're ready to just rededicate, then I ask you to to stand up right now. And if there's somebody standing around you, would you stand up and place a hand on them? Because our brothers and sisters are coming home. God has not designed them to do it by their own strength. So this morning, we just want to come alongside of them and welcome them home. And ask that the God that created them and loves them more than they could ever possibly fathom would fill them up so So here's the prayer. I ask you to repeat after me. Father God, I recognize that I've sinned. I recognize that I have been trying to do it by my own strength. And today I confess that I cannot do it. That I am not enough. And so I thank you that you are. And I thank you that you have done for me what I could not do for myself. Holy Spirit, come into me. Cleanse me. Break the chains that bind me. And do for me what I cannot do for myself. I submit myself to you, Jesus. Would you be the Lord of my life? Would you be the captain of my ship? I love you and I need you. Amen. And I just want to pray right now over you. Father, I thank you so much for the decisions that are being made right now. I know that you, their father, celebrate every single one of your children that comes home, every single one that stops trying to fix it and find their way home on their own strength and simply falls into your arms. And so I know that this brings you joy. And I ask, Father God, that you would fill them up. I ask that you would protect them from the enemy because we have a very real enemy who would love to steal the hope 
that they have found in you. Would love to quash what you have already started to to birth in their hearts. I ask that you would take the truth of their identity as your sons or your daughters and push it deep into the soil of their hearts where it would take root and that they would be able to rest in their identity as your son or your daughter created in your image. And that in your timing and in your way, you would use them to be your ambassadors, light in the darkness. I thank you, God, and I ask for your protection over them. And I ask that you would lead and guide their steps and that you would prompt many of us to come alongside of them and be a support to them. Because we're a family, a family of imperfect, broken people who are called saints, not sinners, who are called sons and daughters, not outcasts. We're all on the same boat. And in you are the captain of our lives. So would you lead and guide us? Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. All right. Should we worship one more?